because uh, we did have the infrastructure set up so that they could remotely run the screen for anyone who's dialing in on the web. So we're going to try and get that going again. <clears throat> uh, the, the fallback position, folks out there, is indeed downloading, and then uh, I would ask the speakers to sort of give a clue as to which slide they're on. But we'll try and get the virtual screen working as our main approach. Um, I just want <clears throat> to sort of reestablish context before I, I let the speakers go here. Um, and, and to clarify, you know, why did we come together? Why are we here? What were we hoping to accomplish? Again, the point is interoperability. Okay, this is why interoperability week, this is why we're here in the sense that we believe the promise of getting interoperability among these upper ontologies will allow people to solve problems which can draw upon things which may have been built in, say, several different upper uh, let's, let's say a chemical plant which was built upon one upper ontology, a whole ontology of chemical plants, and another ontology all about terrorism, which is based upon a different upper ontology. If these two upper ontologies have no means of sharing information between them, knowledge between them, then you're wasting a huge opportunity being able to answer questions about terrorism for this chemical plant. So this is the very beginning step to try and get the upper ontologies, which are the foundation for a variety of domain ontologies, to be able to, to uh, be combined in particular applications and problems so that we can capitalize on the fact that they um, are compatible, that they are interoperable. Um, what we don't want to see happen is a fragmented world where you have to buy into one religion or another and there's really no way of of getting from one worldview to the other. We really want to see if there's a way to get that information, that knowledge, passing between, the, between them. Uh, what we have been having the conversation over the past day and a half, or actually many weeks over the, over the Ethernet, uh, was trying to find out more specifically what the parameters of that were, whether we were trying to pursue a common subset upper ontology, upper than all the other uppers, or whether there was a mapping mechanism to go between them, or there was some kind of lattice of upper ontologies. And these are still very active subjects of the debate, exactly how that's going to happen. But what we, what I feel very good at what we've achieved is we've got a, a large number of the right people in the room, at least now agreeing to have this conversation, agreeing that we're all pulling in the same direction, trying to get these kinds of solutions, so that the larger community can then benefit from that, that approach. So that's kind of a quick take. I'm, I'm hoping some people are telling me that that wasn't really coming through too clearly as to why did we hold this meeting. Uh, it wasn't just a parade of ontologies. You really are trying to get this, this synergy going uh, overall. Okay, with that, now, Doug, I'll let you speak. Do we have the virtual screen working? Uh, not, I, I Looks good from here. Okay. Well, then I guess we have it working. One moment. So do I have to sit here and do the slides? Well, I'm, I did you mind here. Okay, so Doug's aren't on the virtual screen. So are you local or mm -hmm. is it the same set right. that mm -hmm. you gave me? Yeah, so All you right. can flip through them there if you oh, want. Okay, then but, uh, I'll, I'll flip the other one. Okay. So, All right, so um, I just wanted to make a few um, um, essentially parting shot comments about 
um, our ontologies. I've already talked a lot this afternoon, so I don't have that many more things I want to say. And a lot of the questions um, from the audience were sufficiently good that I think a lot of the folks here may be feeling um, um, like uh, the same way. But um, we have two things that are available, open psych um, and research psych. Open psych is um, open source. You can use it for any purpose, including commercially, without paying anything for it. Um, research psych is free for R&D purposes. Um, but we want people to either um, purchase a copy or license it um, if they're going to use it um, for actual um, um, commercial products and services um, on an operational basis. Um, OpenPsych contains, um, with starting with um, this month's release, the entire um, set of terms, what I'd normally refer to as the ontology um, in Psych, plus about a million simple taxonomic relations between them, the arguments of predicates, things like that. Um, plus all the inference machinery and natural language machinery um, as well. Um, we haven't talked a lot about the natural language front end to psych, um, but um, I'll make a few remarks um, in a minute about that. Um, and then research psych, probably the, w the right way to think of it is all of the content I've been talking about. So the same ontology, but millions of more, more complicated um, axioms, assertions, rules, facts, interrelating them. Um, and uh, Okay, so remember we talked about the need to share content and to ex make explicit the context in which, in which each assertion is stated. And uh, you could say, well, what about um, attempts at standards like RDF? The trouble is RDF makes such a small number of commitments, such a small number of metaphysical distinctions in the world um, that um, it's sort of like trying to speak English when all you agree on is the meaning of 11 words. It makes it really hard to say almost anything. Um, similarly, even if you look at DAML and OIL and um, um, similar sorts of semantic web efforts, you end up with a very small number, tens of um, distinctions of um, committed relationships. So um, by contrast, what we really need to commit to, what we need to agree to, are tens of thousands of relations, hundreds of thousands of terms millions of axioms, not um, smaller number. And so I'm saying this in this section of my um, presentations to you because I don't think there's complete universal agreement on this, but I've slowly um, evolved to this position over the last 20-some um, years of working in the field, um, almost kicking and screaming because I didn't really want to believe that this was true. Um, I really wanted to believe that we'd only have to work on this for a few years or um, a decade um, sort of like what um, uh, you were saying about the um, uh, uh, Dartmouth conference in 1956, um, uh, Patrick, about the um, um, belief and hope that the entire thing could be solved in a much smaller amount of time than it actually took. Um, so for the same reason that we have tens of thousands of words in English, I believe that we're going to need to agree on most of the meaning of most of the, the terms um, um, for tens of thousands of terms. And that means um, saying things for um, possibly on the order of millions of axioms. Um, okay, so um, in terms of um, modification here, I'd basically say share not just upper ontology, but also middle and domain ontologies as well uh, about uh, common topics, about commonly understood objects in the world. You may be driving down the road, um, something might appear in the road in front of you um, as an obstacle, uh, even if it's not something which normally is part of the driving down the road task, like let's say a mattress or a refrigerator, 
um, you better be able to react appropriately to it um, if you want to live. So that's sort of my attitude. So as I said, we have a few million um, axioms in the system that we've written by hand, um, and um, those have to do with the things that were necessary to solve problems, the things that um, we looked at pieces of text at random and said, this is what the writer assumed the reader already knew about the world. So we're sort of automating the white space, not the black space in text. And by text, I don't just mean encyclopedia articles. I mean novels, advertisements, um, uh, dialogue from TV shows. It's like, what did this person assume the listener or the reader already knew about the world? And that's the knowledge that we have to put into our system. And that's the knowledge we've been putting into our system. Um, as I mentioned in response to one of the questions, a lot of this knowledge is domain um, independent. And yes, we have a lexicon that maps um, various um, words to their denotations. And uh, that is just the starting point to natural language understanding. Um, here you can see um, interfaces to um, users, in many cases, have to be in natural language because they're not going to learn um, formal representations. They're not going to learn logic. They're not going to learn um, AI. So here's an example of a lexical, part of the lexical entry for um, the verb eat, um, part of the lexical entry for um, the, the English word Coke, which has several different denotations, some of which are slang and so on. Um, we have about um, um, 70,000 um, denotations, not counting the hundreds of thousands of proper noun um, denotations in the um, lexicon right, right now. Um, in terms of open psych, um, there's some slides here which you can download if you're interested, but basically um, there's um, an LGPL, um, um, a light uh, new public license um, way of downloading it, uh, but essentially it's um, free for whatever you want to do um, with it. And as I said, this month's um, release is expanding the number of terms and the number of assertions that go along with it. I'm going to skip that. But basically, um, um, research psych is what almost all of you for, should use uh, if you're in this audience for um, um, coming to hear this talk, it's hard for me to imagine that you wouldn't want to use uh, research psych. Again, you can download that and use it for any R&D purpose um, without um, any um, cost or obligation. Um, we have about 73 research groups around the world that are using it actively, about 500 people um, um, using it sort of full-time um, every day um, from government, commercial, nonprofit, um, and university organizations. When you download research like the way to apply it is um, first um, make a list of uh, the queries or challenge problems or um, the things that one ought to be able to answer if they really were able to do the task you have in mind for this application. And then in order to get those one by one to, to be there, write down the pieces of knowledge the system would have to have, add those pieces of knowledge if they're not in the system already. In rare cases, you'll have to expand the ontology, adding new terms um, wherever they need to belong. Um, in very rare cases, you might have to add some specialized reasoning module. And um, then in the cases where you have information sources, ontologies, databases, web pages that are relevant, you need to explain their schemas. You have to map their schema to Sykes ontology so Sykes can run off to those sources in sub-sub problems as it comes across the need to. Um, I'm not going to go through um, uh, the research psych projects, but um, they include things um, as diverse as like role-playing games with non-player characters being 
um, more realistic in their interactions and um, so on. One other application I'll just give you a sketch of um, is a geospatial knowledge base um, project where basically um, people, um, uh, this is actually done by NGA folks who want to be able to answer questions um, like this one. Um, and basically what they did was they made a long list of those questions. They um, looked at what was in Psych already, which turned out to be like about 1,100 out of about 1,500 um, geospatial terms that they needed in order to um, adequately represent um, uh, what, they, what they needed to represent from their databases. Um, we um, already had most of the um, geospatial predicates that they needed, although there were a few that they had to add. Um, and uh, they basically constructed um, several different micro-theories or contexts, um, basically separated according to um, myriotopology, geotopography, and cartography. As far as I can tell, topography is like other. It's like all the things that occur on maps that don't fall in the previous two categories. But now they can answer questions that cut across um, those lines, like if you've got some complicated um, um, uh, terrain map with different kinds of forests and other types of terrain, and you have some um, geopolitical um, boundaries superimposed on that, um, if this is, say, the boundary of a um, municipal area, let's say a shire, you could say things like, um, is this shire a forest? Um, and even though it's composed of several different hexes there, each of those hexes is a kind of forest, and so their union is a kind of forest, and subset or a muriological part of a forest is a forest, and so the answer is yes, the shire's um, in a forest. And that's like a long way to go for a yes, no answer, but if you want the right answer the right way, that's pretty much um, what you have to do. And here you can see some examples of more sophisticated sorts of questions that they're able to answer um, with the application they built. Um, the bottlenecks to applying research psych um, are several, but in a way the key bottleneck I would say is um, making inference faster. So you either need to pick an application where sub-second response time is not a critical element of the application, or you need to devote some effort to making inference faster, either specifically for your application or generically nudging us to improve um, the inference engine. We have several different ways of improving inference speed, and this applies not just to us, but really broadly to um, all the people who are talking today. Um, the way that they can improve speed has to do with things like um, dropping down to some more restricted representation language, which enables them to um, apply a more efficient theorem prover, a more efficient um, reasoner. Or um, picking a domain-specific um, reasoner, like a chemical equation balancer, um, or a wind tunnel simulator, or moving to some statistical or Bayesian reasoner, or doing something involving analogy or abduction, or something else which is unsound but often works or moving to meta-level reasoning or parallel processing. So you sort of get the idea there. Um, anyway, let me conclude at this point. But basically, um, uh, the main point I wanted to make was that um, um, in addition to the text of the um, communique, the one thing that um, I would sort of add is uh, my expectation that we're going to need to agree on more than what the communique has basically um, committed us to. I think we're going to end up needing to agree on um, massive amount of content um, in order to get the kind of interoperability, in order to get the kind of power out of this that we're all hoping. Oh, that's, that's okay. Who's up next? Uh, I don't have a microphone, so. Well, this one isn't. You folks in the telephone land can't hear me, right? 
See? We, I can hear you. Oh. I can hear you. Just proven. Yep. Can you hear you well? I guess I was uh, under the wrong impression. I didn't think this phone wor- uh, this microphone worked that way. Okay. Uh, thank you, for Doug, for sticking to the schedule. I, I'm sensitive to the fact that some people have a pretty hard deadline to get out of here at 5 o'clock, so I want to keep us moving along. Uh, Adam, are you prepared to do this uh, remotely? I am. If you're, the slides are up, I'll get started. The slides are up. Uh, wait a minute. We're having a little trouble. They're too big for the screen. Let's see. All right. They're up. Okay, so we'll move uh, quickly on to slide two, and slide one just has uh, URLs and email and so forth. Um, so just to amplify what other folks have said uh, before, so imagine you know your view of the web is looking at the stuff in white and being able, because of your common sense, to create the additional material that's here in red, that you know that Joe Smith is a name and so forth. Slide three, However, what the computer sees is a meaningless uh, collection of symbols. So the fact that they're formatted in HTML or XML really doesn't do the machine any good for understanding uh, at any sort of real meaning of understanding uh, what the the content actually is. Slide four. So as uh, Doug was alluding to, well, now we've got the semantic web, and we do have a little bit of semantics thanks to the language. Um, that allow you to make inferences of the sort uh, that I show here on this slide. But on slide five, uh, we have to keep in mind uh, that this is really, it sees again a meaningless collection of symbols for which it can do some inferences that uh, are, are reasonable if we then replace those symbols with the words again. And so if we do this sort of little mental exercise for every model that we create, I think that'll help make the point about how little the machine is understanding. And the challenge here is to get enough stuff like the bottom half of this screen so the machine is able to do a large number of inferences that wind up with uh, the same conclusions that uh, humans would do, even though it's going through a sort of mechanical process. Uh, it doesn't act, isn't actually understanding. It just looks kind of like it. So slide six. So the suggested upper merged ontology, my product, uh, is about a thousand terms, four thousand axioms, and includes formal rules. It's not just a taxonomy. Uh, as I mentioned in the comments before the break, we've mapped it to a very large WordNet lexicon. Uh, we've undergone some standardization efforts, uh, and most importantly, we've expanded uh, the Sumo family of ontologies by adding all sorts of domain and mid-level ontologies to give you roughly the, these sorts of statistics. So uh, I'd say an upper ontology is crucially important. We couldn't have done these domain ontology projects uh, without it, or if we had, we would have been building in all sorts of uh, simplifying assumptions that would have made these products less useful and more difficult, laborious, and probably less correct uh, if, if we just sort of created them uh, on a tabula rasa as opposed to building them on a formal upper ontology. Um, and I'll mention uh, also that Sumo is completely free, owned by the IEEE, and uh, all the domain ontologies, all the tools, all the lexicons are and have always been free, and they're available on, on the site that I uh, list there on page six. Uh, slide seven. Uh, Sumo, as I say, is formally defined. It's not dependent upon any particular uh, implementation in code of, of any particular inference engine. Uh, there's an op- but we do, however, have an open source tool set for doing inference, um, and lots of people are using Sumo nowadays. Slide eight, uh, again, another uh, comment about WordNet. It's sort of a de facto standard English lexicon, uh, but maybe more importantly, 
it spawned a whole series of efforts now known collectively as global WordNet to create uh, large lexicons in other languages. Uh, most of these are also free, and most of them are also linked to Sumo. Uh, and so this really makes a very important point in the world today that you know, we can't assume that everybody uh, speaks or reads English. And so having these links to other languages, so by the ontology can be presented in other languages, so that it can be used in other languages uh, by virtue of, of the, the mappings between the lexicon and the formal ontology. These are really uh, crucial items. In fact, some of the largest uh, users, the most active users of Sumo right now, are in uh, Taiwan and Japan, or I should say Taiwan and China, um, and they actually don't use Sumo in English. They use a presentation of Sumo uh, in uh, Chinese characters. Uh, Sumo has undergone an extensive value, uh, validation process, so mappings to WordNet were a crucial part of this because uh, we were essentially looking over every item in a large dictionary and saying, do we cover this item of knowledge? Is there a home for it in the formal ontology? Uh, because Sumo has been open source since its inception, it's undergone very extensive peer review. I get comments all the time about uh, uh, suggested changes or fixes or additions. Um, maybe most importantly, it's undergone a formal validation with uh, a first-order logical theorem prover. So at least to within the bounds of tractability and, and search speed, we've been able to show how Sumo and uh, the lower-level ontologies are actually free of any logical contradiction. So this is going to become, I think, more and more important for standards in general as standards get larger. It's simply not going to be possible for a human being to to inspect the content and say definitively, is the content correct? We're going to need automated processes to check our standards. And the only way we can have automated processes checking our standards is if they're fully, formally defined in a computable language like first-order logic. Uh, and lastly, the large number of applications to domain ontologies also acted as a, a check on correctness and completeness. Um, slide 10, I just mentioned some issues in internationalization about other languages, and here's just a, a list of some of the languages that are uh, currently supported. Uh, slide 11, uh, Sumo, if, if those thousand terms are uh, sort of too big of a chunk to swallow and somebody needs uh, less of what is than uh, the entirety of what is contained in the ontology, Sumo is a modular ontology with this uh, indicated dependency structure. And so certain segments can be uh, elided uh, if they're not necessary for your particular application. Slide 12, this just illustrates some of the various domain ontologies that have been created that support Sumo. They're separable, but they're completely coherent uh, and compatible with, uh, with each other and with Sumo in particular. Um, so you can use all of them or, or uh, none of them or just uh, whichever ones are particular to your application needs. Slide 13, uh, there's often a concern that, you know, why do we need upper ontology? Isn't this stuff uh, sort of abstract and too general to be useful? And in fact, we did a study, uh, I, I and some colleagues did a study uh, quite a while ago, actually predating Sumo, where we uh, did a study with Psych, where we showed that fully one-third of the terms in the upper ontology were actually appearing in the answers to a large number of test questions on a very practical problem. 
And this really shouldn't be surprising. It would be hard to say a lot of complex or useful things without being able to say that some event occurs before another event or that a particular person was uh, behind or the, the creator or the motive force uh, behind a particular action. These are common things. They're, they're absolutely going to be necessary. And so it's the upper level, the mid-level, and the domain level. All these things are crucially important. Um, slide 14. There's also a notion, I think, occasionally that, you know, this is new. It's new technology. Isn't this stuff too hard? Can't we uh, take a, a simpler approach? And unfortunately, I think a lot of people do uh, wind up taking a simpler approach only uh, to find out later, or maybe they haven't found out at all, um, that, in fact, it doesn't give them the full definition of the terms that they want, that there's still room for ambiguity and uncertainty and uh, miscommunication. So slide 15, uh, the, the humorous response that I try to use is, well, you know, let's just look under the lamppost. We may have lost our keys in the dark alley, but let's just look under the lamppost because the light is better. Um, the, the notion here is that, you know, in the 1980s, people were trying to sell fourth-generation languages and so forth that uh, were somehow magically going to allow the average person to become a programmer, and that wasn't true. It didn't happen. Um, and the same uh, analogy, I think, uh, holds very true for formal ontology. The stuff uh, it is uh, challenging and uh, is going to take a certain amount of education and expertise, and that, I think, should just be uh, acknowledged as, as a necessary fact and tackled as, as an obstacle, just like the fact that uh, one has to do some real programming and it can't be done just by creating a, a nice uh, visual hierarchy in some fourth-generation language. It's simply sort of a fact of life. Okay, and I'll end there. Thanks very much. Thank you, Adam. Hope you could hear that applause. Uh, our next speaker is uh, Nicola uh, Guarino. And you're going to do it off of that machine. And Peter can simultaneously track on the web. So, uh, oh, yeah. Adam, is that you breathing into the phone? Ah, uh, must have been. No, it wasn't me. Whoever it was discreetly stopped, which is much appreciated. The plague of conference calling, you know. The hold with the music being the worst. So, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about Dolce and also to bring you uh, our view with respect to this uh, effort of, uh, of, uh, of uh, joining together the upper ontologies. The aim is uh, to, to build a kind of reference library of upper ontologies. Uh, just a brief uh, uh, clarification of what, uh, uh, what uh, uh, we mean by an ontology from a slightly more technical approach. We already uh, saw the presentation by Miles Davis. Uh, 
And on, first, we, we have a, a bunch of situations. We, we live in, in the middle of situations. We experience situations. We abstract relevant things from situations by building a certain conceptualization of, of the world, by isolating a domain of discourse, a bunch of relevant relations. And when we want to express these things using a language, of course, there is the risk of the interpretation of this language. There are a bunch of all possible models for this language. And among all these possible models, we have to focus on the intended models. The purpose of an ontology is exactly to approximate these intended models, to, the, to restrict the possible interpretations, as, as uh, Doug underlined. Um, <clears throat> sorry, maybe I should just... Uh, I should... Uh, I should uh, Okay. Um, uh, and uh, indeed, uh, the problem is that, that when ontologies do not, are not good enough in, in excluding non-intended models, it may happen that two people, even using the same language, may, may disagree on the intended models, and yet the ontologies uh, uh, appear to be consistent. So uh, this is the, the, the real problem of, uh, of creating a false agreement. So it is not just enough to download your ontology from, from the web, believing that it is useful for you. It may be not useful for you, uh, and, uh, and in order to exclude this, uh, this is possible. In order to recognize this, uh, it is important to have uh, er, er, enough axioms in, in, in your ontology. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, so the purpose of a reference library of upper ontology is, first of all, to understand these agreements, not just converge on things, but also mutually understand one uh, each other, of course, maximize agreements, promote interoperability, and so on. So this reference library could be a starting point for building new ontologies, and also a reference point for uh, easy and rigorous comparison among different ontological approaches, and a common framework for analyzing, harmonizing, and integrating uh, existing ontologies and metadata standards. <coughs> so, what is Dolce? Dolce is a specific ontology, is one possible upper ontologies, ontology explicitly developed uh, with, certain, with a certain bias towards uh, cognition and language mainly. So, <clears throat> so it emphasizes the cognitive invariance uh, which, uh, which uh, uh, are behind the way we, 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 we build up our conceptualization of the world. And also we invested a lot of effort in clarifying the design rationale behind our choices to justify why we, we, we decide to do this way rather than in another way. And it also has a rich axiomatization and so on. Uh, maybe the unique aspect of, of Dolce is the kind of, uh, of uh, principled methodology we, uh, um, we adopted in order to come up with this, uh, with this uh, artifact. Uh, we built on, on the, mainly on philosophical ontology, and, uh, and uh, if you look at the, at the philosophical literature, you see that there are 
there is a limited number of basic chapters of what ontology is about. The theory of essence and identity, the theory of parts, also called Mariology, the theory of wholes, what, what does it mean to be a single thing, the theory of dependence, the theory of composition and constitution, the theory of properties and qualities. These are the main, the main chapters of the science, of the formal science of ontology. And I believe that, uh, that uh, it is possible, it is possible, I'm sorry, it is possible building on these on this, uh, relatively few chapters uh, to isolate a few dozens of basic primitives which constitute the core ontology we really need. So in this sense, I disagree with, with Doug and probably also with, with Adam. I believe that it makes sense to concentrate on a few dozens of basic primitives if these primitives are, are a result of, of a serious effort uh, uh, guided by basic principles. And uh, also a characteristic of Dolce is that it has a kind of fine-grained approach. We, 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 we deal with the so-called individual qualities, the temperature of my body, the color of these rows are specific things we want to quantify on, to mention on, that, that bump on, of the road, that, that particular hole in the cheese are all genuine entities we want uh, to, to, to talk of in our ontology. And behind the, this very core, uh, we developed a number of, uh, of extensions, uh, mainly due to the work of Aldo Ganjemi, which I don't know whether he will be able to talk next. I'm here. Ah, sure. hi. <laughs> and uh, and um, so the ontology of, uh, commons, of ontology of time, ontology of common sense location, descriptions and reified concepts, functional participation, social entities and organizations, plans, tasks, tasks, information objects, knowledge content objects, web services, semantic middleware, legal stuff, legal ontology. All these are extensions to the basic, uh, to the basic Dolce um, ontology. Also a relevant work we did was mapping with, onto, with WordNet by developing a kind of onto WordNet. The difference uh, with respect to the work uh, Adam did uh, is that we also revisited WordNet itself in cooperation with the WordNet uh, uh, developers, with the Christiane Fellbaum and the guys at Princeton, <coughs> and uh, 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 contributing to revisiting the very structure of WordNet and also fleshing out WordNet with the extra, extra uh, relations by means of a, of a mixed top-down and bottom-up approach. <coughs> oh, well, this is just a quick selection of, uh, of the most relevant projects. I'm not going through that. I'm, I'm just uh, uh, focusing on the fact that the variety of the applications uh, we uh, developed and the, and the variety of different domains we addressed uh, is, is to us the best, uh, um, um, the best proof of the generality of our approach. Uh, also, besides these are projects we are involved with, we've been involved with, uh, also other people are taking projects uh, 
basic, basing on Dolce. Uh, before I conclude, let me uh, uh, report a comment I got from a user at the IBM Watson Research Center, which I visited a few days ago, and they say, well, uh, mapping our domain ontology to Dolce helped us to better understand and clarify our, our domain. And this is indeed the main, the main service, uh, well, the main, one of the main, of the most important services a, a, a well-principled upper ontology can do. Not, besides, you know, for, uh, enabling automatic applications and so on, just helping people to understand their, their stuff better, to produce better conceptual models uh, is, uh, in my opinion, a very important uh, role uh, these upper ontologies uh, well-principled upper ontologies can, uh, can do. <coughs> well, also Adam, Adam remarked that uh, building uh, well-founded upper ontologies is hard. Of course, of course it's hard. Uh, um, why should it be easy? Uh, uh, you know, when people uh, develop, uh, uh, develop uh, cellular telephones, uh, they, nobody questions that... Uh, you know, developing, designing cellular telephones is a difficult and complicated thing. So uh, building upper ontologies, in general, building ontologies, building computer models is a hard stuff. There is a high level of complication, of co complexity behind these things. And I believe it is a responsibility of, of the computer science community, even concerning education and so on. We should educate people that doing this thing is hard and it deserves to be addressed in the proper way. Just, uh, just uh, two slides of, uh, of uh, two spots, <laughs> Public, publicity spots. There is a, a journal uh, explicitly devoted to, to um, ontology and specifically applied ontology, which has been uh, just uh, published. The, the first issue has been published. Many of the people here are involved in the, in the, in the journal. And uh, it is the only journal, as far as I know, with, with, with uh, an explicit focus on content, with respect, no, independent of representation and uh, syntax and so on. It just focuses on content, modeling content. And uh, a final uh, publicity spot uh, is uh, for, uh, for a forthcoming, forthcoming conference, uh, Formal Ontology in Information Systems, the, 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 the third uh, version of this uh, conference will be close to here in, uh, in Baltimore uh, in, uh, in uh, November. The local organizers are, are Bill Anderson and, uh, and Leo Obst, who also contributed to this uh, meeting. So uh, I believe this will be uh, an excellent uh, opportunity to attend and to, to submit papers and to, and to learn more about these exciting things. Thanks for your attention. Okay, we're on track on the schedule. So uh, since Aldo is on the telephone, is he next on the agenda? Uh, yes, I'm on the telephone. Let's see. Um, we'll by the way, Steve, uh, have you got my slides? No. Did you? No, I had sent uh, just maybe half an hour past the because I, I have oh. I had no connection in advance. By the way, there are, I modified the wiki page, and uh, there is a pointer to the, the slides okay. on uh, okay, our lab site. 
if you have the connection, is uh, it takes seconds to download. Okay, hold on a second here. Oh, there's an error on there. It still doesn't load. It's a PDF uh, OD based yes. contact yes. page. Yes. That's the one. Okay, you guys are ahead of us. Hold on. We lost our place. Hold on. Bear with us. Again. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yes, we are hearing some good breathing going on. It's uh. <laughs> okay, I can stop explaining it. Sure. <laughs> We're almost there. Whoops. We're, we're clicking on the uh, slides link and it keeps saying not found. Uh, really? Can you explain why? Can you get it to work at your end? Yeah, okay, maybe there could be some problem. I, I tried before and uh, it uh, downloaded it. Did you refresh? Did you refresh here? By the way, okay, I can try it. Uh, I can try. Um, uh, conveying the basic ideas without slides. There, the, there were three pictures. That, oh, I see. As you know, you, pictures can be uh, better than... We can download uh, it. I see what it is. It's a zip a lot of file. Work, so. <laughs> Hold on just a minute. Maybe what we can do here locally... Yeah. yeah. By the way, I sent to, um, to... Uh, to Peter Yim's um, email also there. It's a zip file, so what we're going to do is we're going to uh, uncompress that. But I think in the interest of time, why don't we go ahead and have Michael Mike. Runninger exactly. give his presentation. And by the end of that, hopefully we'll have... Uh, uh, and in the meantime, can you unzip it and host it in the same place? Uh, Aldo, Aldo yeah. is it the, is it the uh, overhead which start the minimal set of DNS primitives? Or is it something yes. else? It is, yes, because is if, if you take off the extensions from the, from the URL, so it's just UOS without an extension, then uh -huh. it, I can download it. Oh, okay, then, sorry, I a, possibly, then I get a possibly, PDF file. I made some typo yeah. when, uh, when modifying the wiki page because well, I was in a hurry then. I, yeah, um, this was from a Mac, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So okay. Maybe, maybe we're close here. We're, uh, okay, okay. I'll be, I'll be quite short on that. Um, may I start? Have you got the first slide? Just, yeah, take off the PPT as well, and just take off the, okay, keep, no, take, yeah, get rid of that. Has, it all has to go, all extensions have to go. <laughs> You'll still have to tell Microsoft that it's a PPT file. Though. It's a PDF file, it's not a PPT file, it's a PDF. It's I'll a tell PDF. you what, is it yeah. PDF? Can we, um... What I'm getting is garbage. I suppose it was more compatible. Never know. Whoops, whoops, whoops. You, you there you go. Okay. Oh. Uh, by the way, let's start discussing. Oh, okay. again. The, the, the ontology of description situation is uh, um, as, uh, an extension of Dolce on one hand. On the other hand, is something that has uh, uh, is, its own life in the sense that its scope is not uh, that of describing all the types of things that um, uh, you can find in the world, but 
uh, or in some world, but it's something that is uh, uh, most probably um, built in order to uh, make sense of different perspectives, of different interpretations over situations that can be singled out. So this is something that uh, relies on um, quite relevant um, cognitive uh, theories, theories of uh, uh, cognitive architectures and uh, cognitive functioning of um, especially humans, but in general, like uh, Carmelo Smith's representational redescription um, and also the theory of affordances by the, psycholo the psychologist Jan Gibson and uh, um, the theory of invariances by um, Robert Nozick and so on. So the, the idea is that uh, we have some uh, Every time we try to uh, describe something, we uh, we have some uh, context, and uh, this um, this context is called description in the, in the ontology. And uh, this this, uh, this description mirrors the um, internal representation that some cognitive agent uh, should have in order to uh, focus to outline um, an interpretation of a situation that has some values. For him, so this value could be a value for an animal when he's outside in the in the wood, in the wildness. Or you have uh, uh, the this relevance, this affordances can also hold for people that work within an organization or for the workflow or when planning something. So in order to to um, to make sense of this, um, I've, um, we have verified massively um, from we've taken into uh, seriously the job of. Um, Providing a vocabulary for reification. And reification um, holds at three different levels. At the level of cognition, since we objectify our internal states in order to make, uh, to work with our internal representations. At the social level, since we reify everything, and uh, we have uh, so many examples now organizations, corporations, uh, contracts, norms, plans, and we would like to quantify all those things. And then you have the verification at the logical level. There are many efforts now in order to suggest how to uh, represent and narrate relationships, for example, in the owl language, since they are not allowed. Um, and the problem is that what, 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 when we verify, logically speaking, then uh, what are we doing? It's just a trick or something which is uh, cognitively relevant and socially uh, independent. So, you know, we have taken seriously this, um, this task of making sense of verification, and the result is that we have um, for, um, uh, the basic, the minimal classes are but, uh, those of descriptions and situations. Situations are, um, they, they can be considered, briefly speaking, verification of the uh, intentional and extensional uh, relations in a, in a first-order language. And, uh, so by using um, relations between descriptions and the concepts that can be uh, defined within a description uh, that can classify entities, we can build a, a, focalize, a focus on a situation as a, uh, considered as a set of circumstances or a set of things we want to uh, interpret. So if you go to the next slide. Uh, which one should we be on? Uh, the, an example of modeling. Okay. This Great. provides an example of what I'm We're saying. Back in sync. Go quite quick here. And here you have description, concepts, and situations. And entities in yellow are uh, mostly um, legacy entities. So, so you can take into consideration another ontology taken as ground ontology in the, in the current uh, OWL implementation, uh, DNS works with the uh, Dolce ground ontology, but in principle can uh, use any other ground ontology. And uh, in this case, the idea is that uh, concepts 
can classify, uh, like um, example here, the concept of Spain prime minister is defined within a description, which is the Spanish constitution. And the prime minister can classify both Aznar and Zapatero, being the last two prime ministers in Spain. And you can then have you can have two different situations. The situation in 2002, when Aznar uh, was classified by the concept of Spain prime minister, and another situation in 2006 in which Zapatero can be classified. So these are two, are two atomic situations that can allow to, to uh, temporarily uh, constrain our um, different classifications, uh, everything in, uh, in a first order language. Then these two situations can be com composed into some uh, situation of uh, Spanish prime ministry chairing and so on. Just to make a simple example. In the next slide, you see uh, the large set of DNS primitives that show you how we can cope with things that are not usually covered with any detail in uh, existing uh, upper-level ontologies, like social agents, figures like organizations, or even uh, information objects. So how to talk about uh, narratives or uh, even the, the uh, documents that are on the web and the differences that can, um, can exist between the content of documents and their um, physical substrate in a, in a way that is compliant with, uh, for example, a semiotic theory of meaning and uh, that is compliant with this DNS ontology since it provides views on um, the way we can describe uh, something, some situation. And we also can talk about collections and collectives and, and even having this, uh, uh, with a mental ontology, we can also um, relate descriptions to internal representations. Okay, this, uh, this machinery, okay, that I don't want to, of course, I can't detail it now, um, is richly axiomatized, and uh, it allows to, um, to model okay, things like plans, not to make planning, okay, just to model plans. Uh, or to model norms, and uh, we have applied it to, uh, for example, in applications that uh, allow to check conflict check uh, conflicts between uh, different regulations in different um, legal systems, or uh, we've applied in uh, this in order to uh, cope with heterogeneous knowledge, like um, uh, integrating uh, regulative knowledge with um, physical uh, object knowledge and with uh, planning knowledge and so on. And uh, this can be done by using the same ontology design patterns that are provided by these, uh, by these primitives. And as I can see, uh, can see in, the, um, in the picture, um, every kind of ontology can be taken as a, a set of uh, primitives uh, about that can um, set of predicates that, um, uh, that quantify over legacy entities. Okay. We can take any uh, kind of ontology and then by providing um, a classification of them within uh, some description, we can re re-describe it, just like human cognition is, uh, is accustomed to do uh, very efficiently since many, uh, many, many times. So this is essentially the, the basic machinery of this ontology that, which is, that is definitely different from the, uh, from the others that are usually uh, commit on uh, um, lengthy discussions on uh, if we have to have uh, objects and events or uh, only four-dimensional objects or uh, if we have to commit on a certain kind of time or another. This, of course, can be also related to uh, the particular style of thought that is uh, followed within a certain community or a, a thought collective or knowledge community. 
And of course, we have to make sense of that, and this can be done in a principled way by following the results of, uh, by using, using the results of uh, cognitive science and philosophy. I think that's, these are the main things. Okay, well, thank you very much, Aldo. You're welcome. I'm afraid we've got to press on here. Uh, so Michael uh, Groninger will be next, uh, talking about uh, PSL. You're going to run your own. Huh? Okay. Well, I, I guess because it was I'll actually be uh, addressing my remarks a little more generally um, than, than simply the process specification language uh, ontology that I, I represent, uh, just to kind of hit a few of the key themes um, of the Opera Ontology Summit from my perspective. Uh, one thing uh, I'd just like to kind of say that the, although the title um, of the summit is Upper Ontology, uh, the number of people at the panel here is evidence that we're actually talking about upper ontologies in plural. And so that one of the big uh, goals that we have uh, as, as part of the ontology community is really to uh, develop methods uh, that we can use to, to uh, relate these existing upper ontologies to each other, but also uh, ways of relating these upper ontologies to the other kinds of ontologies that will be reusing them what people might call intermediate level or eventually uh, domain ontologies. And so now I'm on uh, slide three here for the people on the, uh, on the web. One of the things uh, that I, I would also like to be able to, uh, to achieve or have people in the group achieve is to replace a lot of the, the kind of the philosophical claims and debates with very well-posed logical problems. Right? I think we need to move uh, from... Statements like, well, we believe that some set of concepts in two ontologies are equivalent to something to say that we can actually prove in some very formal and rigorous way that some set of concepts in these ontologies are equivalent. Right? What we want to be able to do is to move uh, and create more of, uh, of a scientific, mathematical, logical methodology uh, when we are not only building ontologies, but also when we're reusing ontologies. And the next slide... Uh, th this is more of a, of a, of a technical uh, uh, definition. I don't really want to dwell on it too long, but it's one approach uh, that's also shared, I guess, by the group in, in uh, Bremen, uh, John Bateman, the idea of uh, having some way of saying that one theory, one component theory within a modular ontology, how, in what sense would it generalize uh, another kind of theory? Right? So the, there's this basic idea that if, you can, if one theory can uh, define the terms take the terms in other ontology and provide a definition using its terms, then in some sense it's a stronger kind of theory. And the thing, if we are, are looking at uh, a whole set of ontologies and we're trying to find, identify certain commonalities as one of the, I think it's objective, uh, or note 10 in our, our communique says, is essentially we're looking for uh, the weaker 
kinds of theories. The theories that are going to be common among the different ontologies are going to, in, in a logical sense, be weaker. And this notion of generalization is just one kind of possible approach. But the idea is that if you have this kind of definition, then what this allows us to do is to specify a problem. Given two theories, determine whether there exists a non-trivial theory that generalizes both. Okay? This is a well-posed logical problem. It has a definite answer. Uh, and given the, the set of ontologies that exist, we can actually go through and try to address this question. Now, as Nicola said, this is not necessarily easy. This will be hard. Uh, I don't think it's as hard as, you know, Fermat's last theorem, but, uh, you know, although if it is, it will keep us employed. But, uh, you know, we have to at least start and, and begin to address these kinds of questions and pose them. Now, the next slide... Um, has, I think, what are, I believe are certain requirements uh, that the ontologies uh, need, to be, need to satisfy in order to say we can actually prove this. Uh, a lot of ontologies um, that, that people have, uh, have kind of put together are often uh, uh, kind of relatively weak from a logical perspective. Uh, as Nicole's, one of, uh, or two of Nicola's diagrams uh, illustrated, is that when you're building an ontology, you have some set of intended models, some set of intended interpretations of the terminology in your ontology. And the whole idea of using logical languages to write axioms is to have a correspondence between all the possible models or interpretations of the axioms and have them be as close as possible to the intended interpretations that you had, the semantics that were in your head as the designer. Uh, so in order to, to my, my position is, is really in order to be able to, to prove uh, equivalences among ontologies, first of all, the ontology needs to be consistent, right? There needs to be a, a, a proof of consistency that you have uh, uh, this, uh, this set of axioms, as, uh, of axioms as satisfiable. And the second point uh, is that the, the ontology must actually axiomatize its set of intended models. So there has to be a complete correspondence between the actual models of your ontology and the intended models um, that you had. Uh, and the other thing is, is that we, you want to say you, this evaluation of the relationships has to be made according to the axioms alone. Because very often what will happen is when uh, people are, are doing mappings, uh, you know, especially in dialogue, is to say, well, you know, in the back of my head I have this particular interpretation. And if you make a mapping, I'm going to say, no, that mapping's wrong. You know, because in my head that's not what the meaning is. But very often, well, that's consistent with the axioms you have down, and, and so you, 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 we have this, this, kind of, this lack of, of, of semantic uh, interoperability. And the other thing uh, is that ontologies often have uh, hidden assumptions, again, because a lot of the semantics is still in, in the designer's heads. And what we want to be able to do is uh, some way of, of identifying these hidden assumptions and bringing them to the light of day. Uh, so the last slide is this notion of verified ontologies uh, that, that I uh, used with uh, Mike Ushold. Um, and this really addresses, I guess, point nine in the communique of having a uh, very rigorous evaluation of the ontologies as a preliminary step to identifying the relationships among them. And so the, the, the research challenge here for any ontologies that we build is to say, given the axioms of, of an ontology or in, in general, you know, other, other uh, ontologies, prove they're consistent and prove that they actually axiomatize these intended models. So again, these are research questions, uh, open research questions, uh, but they also have uh, enormous practical impact. Uh, and uh, just as, as the one plug for the work I do, 
uh, ontologies with these properties do exist. Uh, the process specification language, uh, which has been published as a standard ISO 18629, uh, is a modular extensible ontology. It's oriented around process uh, modeling. Uh, there's a, a theory of about 18 axioms called PSL core that captures basic notions like uh, pro activities and activity occurrences and time points and objects. Uh, and there's a set of various extensions uh, to this uh, modules. Uh, and each of these modules has been proven uh, consistent and we've characterized all the possible kinds of interpretations. And as a result, it's, it's played a, an important role in, in some uh, uh, semantic integration of software applications and uh, also has been the uh, semantic foundation for a project called uh, SWISIF, the Semantic Web Services Framework, uh, which is a project in W3C, which is trying to pull the community kicking and screaming into a more of a first order uh, and beyond kind of language and ontology. Thank you. Thanks very much, Michael. Uh, okay, we are charging along here, and I'm looking over Peter's shoulder to see what's next. Okay. We've got uh, three more to go, John Bateman, then Barry Smith, and then Matthew West. So uh, uh, John Bateman is remote and hopefully on the line. Yeah, hopefully uh, I won't be too remote when I come across, but anyway, here he comes. Um, I'm going to be giving also a rather more general view and giving also a, an idea of a different area of application that we've been working on and also bringing in my position or our position on bringing ontologies together. So we see on slide two, we can change if you, yeah, okay, good. If we see on slide two, that's the area we're working in, particularly on spatial cognition as part of a 12-year research program funded by the German Research Council, where we're looking at autonomous, partially autonomous artificial agents for helping people deal with space. And on slide three, we see the kind of activities which that involves, mobility support, spatially embedded tasks, exploration, navigation. Now on slide four, we see a first statement of the problem which that raises, how many different kinds of knowledge are required to get people into the loop in a way which is helpful. And on slide five, we see one of the areas which we're working with, and that is a automated uh, autonomous uh, wheelchair, which we can interact with in natural language, and also which must put together various different kinds of information. So on slide six, we see some of that different kind of information, very different kind of information to what we've been hearing about so far, and it relates to some of the discussions of going off into the other kinds of representation. That's what the robot sees. So on slide seven, we get a sense of the problem that if uh, our little friendly person up on the right-hand side, which I can't see here, somebody in there says, where are you? And somewhere is somewhere else, then uh, there are lots of unhelpful ways of answering the question, which we see on slide eight. Like I might say that I am 25 meters northwest of you. And if you're in an inside situation, that's not very helpful. So let's look at slide nine, where we have some rather more helpful things, like ordinary instructions. And as always with these ordinary natural language instructions, they hide a whole lot of hidden assumptions. And we see some of those on slide 10. So if we have a, a question of like a corridor, well, what's that? If we have a corridor, then the robot doesn't see a corridor. The robot sees some other sensor data. And it's similar with all of these points here, that they are bringing together different areas of knowledge. It doesn't just relate to what is the definition of a corridor. We have to ground that out as well. So we get into the, the, uh, the symbol, uh, symbol grounding problem. 
So if we put it out together on slide 11, we see some of the sources of relevant knowledge that we have to be combining, like location-based services, geographic information services and systems, common sense objects, all the way down to robot perception. So that lets us restate the problem I started with on slide 12, how do we get all of these diverse areas of expertise to talk to each other? And that's a serious issue, and this relates exactly to the point with the communique. So different kinds of knowledge maintained by these systems are all very different. And so we believe, as on slide, uh, well, it comes up 12, 13, that we need to pursue using ontological engineering techniques a systematic way of relating these different kinds of tasks and different kinds of ontologies. So the goal which we have is on slide 14, which restates in a kind of graphical sense some of the things which you've heard from, from others, but we want to build different ontologies and relate them together in a formal means, as we see there on slide 15. So we want to get into ontology mappings working and up and running for us so that we can solve these real problems of getting different types of representations, different views of the world to talk to each other. But we can only do that if there is sufficient content to get hold of. And this is a real crucial issue where we get to the axiomatized ontologies that we've been discussing and talking about today. That is, we're not relating just simple terms in these different ontologies. We need to relate entire theories. And to do this, we have the axiomatization. So on slide 16, we have what are theories. So we all have theories of the world, um, as we've seen some of these uh, in all of the ontologies we're looking for. But our axiomatized ontologies set out such theories in explicit specifications, and that's the crucial step. So on slide 17, we can see that we have these view which Nicola presented, like basic chapters of ontology, which we then use as actual software components that we relate using ontological development tools. So if we go on to uh, jump over 16 and 18 here, could you go on to the next one, to 19? Okay. So we believe that we have to have ontologies which are grouping axioms into logically appropriate theories. And these theories then must be extendable to allow reuse. And most crucially of all, we need to be able to relate these theories one to the other. And I think only then do we get a real reuse factor uh, where we can put these ontologies together in a scalable fashion. On slide 20, just to head right along, I'm going to jump over a couple of examples here because they're kind of similar to um, the examples which Doug Leonard uh, presented to us before. And I'm going to jump right to the third example to make a real graphical point and also say again um, something which Michael Groninger was saying uh, in a uh, slightly uh, more example or exemplifying way. So if we jump right over to slide 27, there are, if you can pick up on the other examples uh, uh, in your spare time. Uh, I'm going to answer this question, when is a road not a road, and use this as an example of how we are combining very different kinds of ontological information in the area of space from small scale up to geographic space. So the problem here is that we've got two communities. Community one is designing roads and highways and building connections between them, building uh, 
putting cities uh, in connection with each other, etc. Community two, very different view of the world. They're dealing with the environment and animal species and habitats, and there are various properties which they are concerned with. If we look at slide 28, which is where we see the uh, uh, a rendition of how one might approach both of these communities separately, drawing attention to a relation to an upper ontology where the one on the left with the transit system is, can be related to a graph ontology very straightforwardly, whereas the environmental one on the right-hand side could be related to a region ontology. Each of those different upper ontologies could provide useful information for the communities by themselves, but what we can do if we start then interrelating ontologies to take the next step. So, for example, if we build this new highway between A and B, does it have any consequences for the environment? And if we look at an inter-ontology mapping, which we see on slide 29, then we can get the sense that we can draw information from one to the other. So we get the sense that the connection in the graph is, in fact, doing a boundary between a region, which mapping down to the real world on the right-hand side or the lower side is saying that, well, this could actually be a problem for this habitat here. What we see here is an example where quite small ontologies can give us some information. And what's important there, going back to, to what Nicola was saying, is that having this work correctly, so we know that the ontology is correctly defined so we can draw reliable inferences across different ways of viewing the world. So then the essential idea is on 30 to start leading us to the end, that we're providing through the ontologies channels to information from particular worldviews, particular theories of the world, we don't have to redo that work when it's been done well, when we have validated ontologies, but being able to combine these in sensible ways gives us an you know, extreme uh, uh, high added value for uh, leveraging off each other. So slide 31, I think that the prerequisites for success is that we need axioms, so we need logic, unless we then we wouldn't be able to reason with these things. We need to be able to chunk these axioms, so we need to build theories, so we need a structured approach, and we need to be able to reuse these, these uh, uh, classes and libraries of theories. And we need then to relate between them. So to finish, slide 32. These are the essential ingredients then that we're drawing on in our work in Bremen. We're taking existing ontologies, uh, some of which we've heard and some of which we will hear, um, and also the one which uh, uh, I am uh, custodianing on the last one, where we are concerned with contextualized multilingual natural language interpretation, which uh, I haven't gone into details, but that's part of what we work on, and using state-of-the-art logical tools for bringing these all together. So we think it's really crucial now to be working on these connections between theories within well-founded ontologies, and I think that the kind of activities which we have set out and advocated within the communique will certainly lead us towards uh, this position where we can make much more out of our semantic information. Thank you. Thanks very much, John, and uh, stick around. We might have some time for some discussion afterwards. Uh, okay. Uh, next is Barry Smith. Is Barry on the line today? I am indeed, yes. All right. Are you in Japan? Uh, no, I'm in Germany. Germany. I knew you were yeah. somewhere over there. Okay, well, give us a moment here. We'll get your slides up and uh, let you take it away. Hold on. You've already downloaded? 
So I can start talking while the slides appear. Okay. I'm, I'm going to introduce a perspective which hasn't played much of a role so far, which is the perspective of formal ontology to assist scientific research. So basic formal ontology has been used and tested primarily in uh, cooperation with biomedical researchers in recent years, with, with uh, researchers in geospatial science, including John Bateman, in previous years. Um, before I start, I'd like to uh, draw on a remark which Adam made in his presentation earlier. He said that we can't assume that everyone reads English. Now, in fact, in scientific research nowadays, you can assume that everyone reads English. Uh, and that's, that means that English yields a sort of common ontology for the world of scientific research. In biomedical research, that includes also bits of Latin. And, of course, Latin used to serve as a sort of common ontology for scientific research. But in the age of computers, English is not enough. We need something more formally rigorous. And I think that's why we need formal ontologies or formal upper ontologies. Uh, next slide. So the basic formal ontology is designed as a highest common denominator upper ontology, which has the aim of supporting interoperability across scientific disciplines. And it's part of a, an effort involving various research groups supported by the NIH who have the job of making huge amounts of clinical trial and model organism data reusable. Next slide. Now, the problem with English is that people can speak English perfectly well and still make ontological mistakes. And uh, if you look at the way medical ontologies, the existing ones, have been constructed, you'll find that they're full of confusions. Confusions about definitions, confusions about types and instances, which are very often confused. Confusions about the difference between processes and objects. Confusions about functions which are often identified with the activities which are their functioning and so forth. Next slide. So we need a formal ontology in which the ontology will deal, I think, primarily with the types and leave data and databases to be primarily about instances. And if we make this distinction, then we need also to distinguish between instance-level relations, for instance, between this object and that object, here before you on the lab bench, and type-level relations between the corresponding types. And again, existing biomedical ontologies, unfortunately, very seldom are clear about those distinctions. The distinctions are perfectly commonsensical in a framework like description logic, or indeed in, in first-order logic, but they are not distinctions which are conveyed clearly to the biologists who have to create domain ontologies for the purposes of making their, their data interoperable. Next slide. The second distinguishing mark of BUFO is that while it's created in a first-order logic framework, it allows quantification not only over instances but also over types so that we can express a relationship like this cell membrane is an instance of the type cell membrane by using one relational predicate instance of and then two constant terms, one for the cell membrane and one for the type. In this way, we can imitate 
some of the features of second-order logic in a first-order framework. And this turns out to have many advantages when you're dealing with very large domain ontologies of the sort which you have to deal with in biomedicine, many of which have millions of terms. Next slide. Now, if you're trying to unify domain ontologies from highly diverse parts of biology and medicine, then there are going to be very few terms which are common to all of these diverse domains, but which are nonetheless very crucial, terms like instance and type and function and object and so on. And BOPO strives to be the ontology covering those common terms designating high-level categories which are shared in common by diverse domain ontologies. Its goal is to be formally sufficiently robust to support the needs of high-level scientific research across a wide scope, but at the same time it needs to be sufficiently commonsensical that people who aren't computer scientists or logicians will understand. And I think that's another way in which Buffo differs from some of the other ontologies we've uh, heard about today. Buffo is a full-service ontology. Our goal is to catch scientists very early on in the process of creating domain ontologies and prevent them from characteristic confusions. Next slide. So why should an upper ontology be small? Biologists need an upper ontology which they can understand and accept. They will not learn large and complicated lists of axioms. And they will not accept an upper ontology which embodies axiomatic treatments of t biological types which they properly want to deal with in their own domain ontologies. They will also not accept an upper ontology which does not accept both 3D and 4D objects, that is to say both organisms and cells and the like on the one hand, and the processes in which those organisms and cells are involved. Next slide. So, why do we need axiomatization? We need to help biologists create domain ontologies which will allow logic-based reasoning and coherent interoperability of their data. Axioms and definitions formulated exclusively in terms which a machine can understand will not be used by those developers of domain ontologies, and they are the only people who can develop the domain ontologies. And for this reason, Buffo is maintained in equivalent human intelligible and machine intelligible format. And that's the final slide. Thank you. Thank you, Barry, for uh, staying up late with us as well, since it must be like... Well, uh, at least I'm not in Tokyo anymore. So. That's right. That was last week. I, I forgot. Yeah, well, no, it was two days ago. Oh, okay. I knew you were over there earlier. Okay. Yeah. This is a truly international meeting. You see, we've got people on the west coast of the U.S. and Europe, etc. Okay, moving on. Our last speaker, Matthew West, uh, is going to be talking uh, on something that doesn't have a simple English word, but it's ISO 50. 15926, right? Okay, the people on the internet will have to wait a little bit uh, for the upload, but in the meantime, let's have Matthew. Uh, yeah, actually, there's, a, there's only one slide that's different from what's on the, on the wiki. Um, right, yes, my name's Matthew West. Um, uh, I think I'm unique in, uh, amongst the upper ontologists, if that's a good word for us. 
um, in that I work for a commercial organization that does not have as its purpose developing upper ontologies or, or, or for a research organization. So um, uh, that means that there are a few things that I can say that it's harder for some of the other people to say. So I work for Shell, um, but I'm the custodian for uh, ISO 15096, or perhaps a, a better way to describe that would be ambassador. Uh, if you're on the wiki, this, the, uh, this is now slide, the second slide, which is uh, really just an overview of ISO 15926 and its distinguishing features. Um, again, different from all the other upper ontologies, uh, ISO 15926 is a rigorous 4D ontology. Uh, that means it treats physical objects as extended in time as well as space, uh, rather than as objects which pass through space but are wholly present at each point in time, which is, which is a key distinction. Um, it's a full ISO standard. Uh, it, it has been standardized. That, that process was completed in 2003, and uh, uh, that's a distinction we have with Michael Gruniger's uh, PSL. Uh, in fact, both standardized in the same ISO subcommittee. Um, it was developed originally as a data model, um, but is also available in ALFL and, as it happens, XML schema. Um, I think I've mentioned in, a, in an earlier session uh, that our approach to... Uh, representations is to be representationally promiscuous. If it's useful for it to be in a particular format, uh, then we will try to make it available in that format. Um, the upper ontology, which, which is uh, uh, in 15926, is just 201 entities, um, but there are some 50,000 entities available in a process engineering ontology uh, which uh, aims in particular to support the oil and gas industry, um, but actually there's quite a lot in there that would support any engineering activity. Um, we have a limited axiomatization at the moment. Um, uh, our focus is not doing the kind of uh, general purpose, common sense reasoning that, for instance, Psych is aimed at doing. Uh, we're much more trying to take an engineering view of the world and support engineering applications and integration of engineering applications. Uh, there's significant industrial support from the oil and gas industries. Uh, there's something between 50 and 100 companies that uh, are using, the using or supporting the development of the standard. Um, and we're starting to, since the, it became an ISO standard, um, there have been uh, a number of the uh, uh, computer-aided design uh, vendors that, that support the process industries have been starting to come on board with supporting the standard, which, of course, is, is why it's there. And like most of the uh, other ontologies here, we've been a long time getting to where we are. We've been going for about 15 years in development. Um, it's been a long and painful process. Um, uh, please do not uh, go through this long and painful process from scratch um, if you don't have something already. Um, What's ISO 15926 good for? Um, uh, it's good for integrating diverse information systems. Uh, this was the, actually the uh, original motivation and the, the, the scenario that justified the development of the standard in the first place. Um, the scenario, uh, well, I'll talk about that on the next slide, actually. Um, it's good for supporting engineering applications. Um, 
It's good for applications involving time and space. Uh, this is, comes from the four-dimensionalism. Um, it's good for managing change because change is built into four-dimensionalism. You can't, you can't duck the issue. Um, and it's good for integrating and analyzing mid-level ontologies. Those are, the, those are the kinds of things. If, if you're trying to do those kinds of things, um, I'd suggest having a look at ISO 1596. Okay, next slide, please. Okay, uh, the wider uses of ontologies. Um, let's just have a look at uh, the next build. Um, if you look at the upper ontologies that we have available here, they fit here on this, uh, on this slide. So what I've got is an axis along the bottom, which is language expressiveness. So what kinds of languages are they expressed in? Um, and those languages give you certain capabilities. Um, and on, on the vertical axis, I've got ontological rigor. Well, now let's look at where most information systems are. And next bit of the build. And this is where the vast bulk of information systems are. Most information systems do not have an explicit ontology. They all have an ontology. It's just not explicit. Um, it's in the code. It's in the way the users use the system. It's in all kinds of things. It's part of it's in the documentation. And it's just not explicit. Uh, if we look at, there are some systems um, that are relatively intelligent that are still using these sort of basic, basic technologies, um, but in a much more sophisticated way with more ontological rigor. But here we're talking about the odd few percent of applications. And then the other thing that we see um, is a small but increasing number of lower and mid-level ontologies. Now, um, a lot of the emphasis here has been on uh, using the upper ontologies and, and specialized ontologies underneath them uh, to support reasoning. And I think that's great stuff. In my view, though, that's high-end stuff. It's very sexy and all that. Um, but actually, the real elephant in terms of economic improvement that we can achieve is about helping to fix some of these other things that are, that are there, in particularly the vast bulk of IT systems. We've all come across IT systems that actually stop us doing what we need to do. And when a system stops you from doing what you need to do, it means its ontology is crap. Okay? Now, we can do a whole heap by starting to apply some of these upper ontologies um, to try to help analyze uh, and support the re-engineering of those systems where they are broke. Uh, it can also be used uh, to support the development of, of more sophisticated applications. And, of course, it can be used to speed up uh, the, the, uh, the mid-level mid ontologies that are, that are being produced. Uh, three cases that uh, we've been doing in Shell, or I, we've been involved with. I, I talked about um, uh, the limited, if we look at the limited systems, our original case study was looking at design systems. Um, uh, ten years ago now, uh, we used... Uh, what was the forerunner for ISO 1596 uh, to integrate more than 40, 40 engineering systems on a project which was a two billion, then a $2 billion project uh, developing a North Sea uh, offshore rig. Um, it cost us uh, about a million dollars to put, do that integration. Uh, we were able to count benefits of the order of $5 million to that project in doing that. It's, it's easy money. Um, if we look at uh, sophisticated applications, uh, there's a system we developed called Kaleido, uh, which uh, helps 
suck the information out of our transaction processing systems. Shell's a company, well, Shell's not a company. It's about 150 companies. Um, and Shell has historically had a high level of autonomy um, amongst those organizations. Uh, I'm sure U.S. government doesn't have anything like that. Um, the, um, uh, uh, so we needed to get a view across the whole business. Uh, that meant we needed to be able to integrate that data, bring it into a common way, and uh, get out of it the key performance indicators we needed. Not only did this system do that, but it also enabled you to change the way you wanted to see the information um, and move that forward and manage that change. Um, finally, uh, I'm just working on a project at the moment. Uh, we're developing a corporate data model for Shell's downstream business. That's refinery to petrol pump. Um, and uh, we've been doing that uh, based on ISO 15926. We've used that as our foundation. Um, and <clears throat> uh, we've done that uh, to a higher quality than any previous model that's been developed in Shell. We've done it in about a third of the time and a third of the cost. Uh, and by the way, developing corporate data models is something most people say is impossible on the basis that about 75% of them fail, uh, 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 these kinds of things fail. We've, we've, we're just about to get to the publication process. That's two weeks away, uh, and that'll, that'll be nine months from when we started, and about half a million dollars. Okay, next slide. Okay, I thought um, it would be good to say what I plan to do um, as a result of this Upper Ontology Summit, uh, because actually if we don't do something, uh, you know, it'll just have been a nice warm feeling that we go away with. Um, I've been uh, I, I'm talking to Nicola Guarino recently. We've, we've had links with uh, uh, his group, um, and we're looking, going to look to develop a KIF version of ISO 15926. Uh, this will enable us to extend the axiomatization we have at the moment, um, and we'd also want to do some uh, uh, work comparing it, it to Dolce. Dolce is a three-dimensional ontology, and it'll be very interesting to see, uh, look at the differences uh, and how the two ontologies relate to each other. Um, uh, and that's something I'm going to go back to Shell for and see if I can persuade them to fund that work. Uh, I'm going to support and participate in the development of a, a library or lattice of theories with other ontology custodians, uh, see if there are things that we can do in that area uh, to carve things up into reusable pieces that can be made available. Um, I don't know how, how others are, but if, if others are prepared to do that sort of thing, I'll certainly stand and, and work with those who are prepared to do that kind of work. Uh, support and uh, participate in the analysis of ontologies. This is the kind of work that... Um, John Bateman and uh, Michael Groninger were talking about um, looking at um, understanding the dependencies and modularity that's there and using that as a way of improving ontologies. And support and participate in the mapping between the upper ontologies with other upper ontology custodians. You will have noticed that mostly the different upper ontologies are pointed at slightly different problems. Um, it would therefore be very useful if they could cooperate with each other uh, to, to solve wider problems than, than each of them. Uh, and, and on the other hand, uh, general, more general purpose ones can use more specialized ones in particular areas. Um, I think that's uh, likely to be a fruitful area uh, for work. And, and again, I would aim to support that kind of activity. Thank you very much. Uh, before I open it to sort of a rash of questions or discussion or anything, um, 
there are two things I want to do. Uh, one is I want to introduce uh, a person to you whose name has not been very present today, but whose activity in supporting this summit and the discussions prior to it uh, were essential. And that is Peter Yim, who is actually hiding behind the screen right here. Peter has been a tremendous force. Uh, he, is, um, he and his company actually support a lot of this collaborative work environment that has enabled us to have uh, a tremendously fruitful discussion over the last couple of months, actually. Uh, and that's why we're doing all this wiki stuff. You can, uh, while it, uh, you know, we've had our little learning pains here a little bit, the, the fact is all of this information is archived now. All of the slides you've seen are on the web and available to each of you when you walk out of here, as well as lots of other cross-links in there. So the point of that is this is not gone. Uh, you have access to all of this information. And I actually just wanted to give Peter a, a few moments just to say anything. It's a... uh, I think all I would like to say is thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone who came here. Thanks to the rest of the organizing committee, uh, of course, our collaborator, NIST, who co-organized uh, this function with us. I mean, uh, I come from Ontolock, and uh, Leo Oberst over there uh, is one of the co-conveners. I am, and then we have another partner, uh, Kurt Conrad. And we all came from slightly different angles. Kurt is a part of the original XML team. Uh, Leo is the, the ontologist on the team, and I'm the collaborator. Uh, and of course, thanks to NIST, I mean, to be hosting this event. I, I think it's a very important event. Uh, Ontolog probably spent the last four years trying to get everyone uh, to even become a member of, of, of the community to, so, so that we can say, uh, uh, we, let's sit down. Uh, of course, thanks to all the key, uh, all the uh, custodians, because it's their work that we are trying to present to the rest of the world here and also create the opportunity for all of them to, uh, to talk to each other. Uh, very importantly, besides the custodians, there were a whole uh, group of people whom we have identified as key participants who are instrumental in helping us call the conversation and make what we see here today, I mean, the joint communicate, all the presentations, I mean, all the work uh, possible, and I, I won't name them, uh, but the list is here and it's on the, on the uh, wiki site. Uh, lastly, I would also like to thank 25 uh, I would say visionary organizations who had actually lent us their support by way of uh, providing technical uh, funding or endorsing the purpose of this upper ontology uh, ontology summit, and that includes like uh, Bill Anderson's uh, applied on uh, 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 the applied ontology journal that uh, Nicola mentioned, uh, Boeing uh, that Mike Ushold. Uh, represents uh, Epistle, uh, that's the group that developed the ISO 15926 uh, uh, specification, uh, my company, CIM3. Uh, Nicola's 
an, an elder Gangamis organization uh, from Italy, Cycol, uh, Ducks organization, ECO, the European Center for Ontological Research, uh, IBM Research, uh, represented by Chris Welty here, uh, the IEEE Standard Upper Ontology Working Group that Jim Shoning represents. Uh, here, I would have to especially thank Jim, who started this whole uh, uh, upper ontology dialogue and discussion in the IEEE uh, P 1600 uh, mailing list and virtual organization. Uh, the ISO TC 184 SC4, um, which uh, I, uh, JWG8, I mean, that's uh, uh, Mike Groninger's ISO 18629 working group. MITRE, who sent us uh, Leo and Pat Cassidy, uh, Pat Cassidy also, I mean, uh, was very instrumental in drawing up a lot of the background work that led to this summit, uh, technically. Uh, ANCOR, Barry Smith and Mark Musen's uh, organization, uh, the Nas uh, Na U.S. National Center for Ontological Research, uh, Mark Musen's National Center for Biomedical Ontology, NIST, of course, uh, OASIS, uh, Universal Business Language Technical uh, Committee, of which I originally came from. Uh, actually, we start, the ontologue started out as a conversation there, and we got kicked out because, I mean, it takes too much time, and they needed a, a very fast spec. And so we virtualized, became an international virtual community of practice. Uh, ontologue, uh, I mentioned ontology works, that's Bill Anderson's company, and Bill asked probably the most important question uh, on, on how we can reconcile with the uh, uh, semantic web people. Uh, Shell, of course, as Matthew West's company, Bremen Ontolo Ontology Research Group, uh, from which John Bateman and Till uh, Mastokowski came from, and uh, the University of Buffalo uh, Philosophy Department, UMBC Institute of Language and Information Technology, uh, and that's uh, last and not least, uh, University of Maryland College of Information Studies, uh, where Dagobert Sogel came from, and Dagobert is also a, a member of the organizing committee, and he chaired uh, the session this morning. Unfortunately, he has to get into a, a PhD student's defense uh, meeting and cannot be with us this afternoon. So thank you very much, Steve. Okay. Sure. Well, it's kind of a long one, actually, but the easiest way I always use is I just do a Google on Upper, upper Ontology Summit. <laughs> That'll get you there. Uh, <clears throat> Especially if you put Upper Ontology Summit together without the space in between. That's right? true. You'll notice the wiki has this weird way of putting people's names. That's a wiki word. And in fact, all of those are links to biographies of the various participants. Uh, it'll also segue you into things like the Ontologue Forum, which is the organization that co-sponsored this, this summit. And you'll find yourself in this ever-expanding web of communities, conversations, research agendas, etc. So um, 
It's uh, very addictive, I'll tell you, but uh, tremendously powerful. It doesn't think, you don't think it's that powerful when you first see it, just a bunch of links, but in fact, it serves as a repository. Uh, it's got threaded mail archives and everything. I, I'm a, become a big fan. I know there are various people in the audience, uh, Susan, Brand, uh, various people. This is actually helping uh, in the government integration activities as well, this kind of technology. And as I say, I think it's serving kind of like Wikipedia, you know, as, as a repository of information that we can all refer to and go back to over the long term. Um, so I, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't launch into any more detailed uh, questions and answers at this point because I really want to emphasize that this is the beginning of a conversation. Uh, uh, what we're hoping is that this has demonstrated that um, <clears throat> you can really enter into this community through any of these avenues, any of the names you've seen. We're all talking to each other. Uh, we're talking to each other more and more, and uh, so you're not gambling that you're missing out on a whole view of things. This is going to be an expanding community. We're going to be bringing in the, you know, the medical folks and the UMLS is there and all. So uh, you don't have to worry too much about, am I betting on the wrong horse? Uh, these things are going to have bridges between them. And I think that's the most powerful thing, that people can enter into this community. Uh, this represents a worldwide community that I think, you know, you plug into this thing, you're talking to the right kind of people for this kind of work. Uh, and it then has branches and tentacles into a variety of domain ontologies and all. You don't have to wonder, did I get it right or something? I think uh, there's, there's a lot of powerful minds at work here. I, I am personally very humbled by the population of people that I've had exposure to here. Um, this is just a tremendous... Uh, resource. Uh, I myself am not an expert in ontologies. I'm, I'm more of a, a stakeholder, a user, but I see the power and I'm tremendously appreciative of being able to tap into the combined knowledge where people are saying things and have opinions based upon decades of research and understanding in these things. So that's um, very hard to find. Uh, it's hard to get access to that in the past when uh, we didn't have this kind of connectedness. Uh, you would have to you know, contract with someone to even have a moment of their time. So this is just amazing that we can do this kind of thing, in my, in my personal opinion. So I'm not going to wax eloquent anymore here. I think uh, we've only got 10 minutes anyway on the schedule, but I think I'd just like to say I really thank everyone for coming here and uh, participating and showing your interest. I hope we will continue to expand uh, please stop in the web, and uh, the Ontolog Forum has weekly meetings anyway, which are all web accessible. You'll see a list of about 40 past speakers, all of whose slides and MP3 recordings of presentations are available. So you can actually sit in on past presentations if you like. Um, so it's all there, and I hope everyone uh, takes full advantage of it and we can move forward. Um, with that, I think I'll go ahead and close this, close this session and... Uh, Wish you all best of luck and hope we all see each other again often. Good night from Vienna. Thanks, all you guys out there.